In the Book of Mormon, we read about 2,000 exemplary young men who were exceedingly valiant, courageous, and strong. They were men of truth and soberness, for they had been taught to keep the commandments of God and to walk uprightly before Him. These faithful young men paid tribute to their mothers. They said, Our mothers knew it. I would suspect that the mothers of Captain Moroni, Mosiah, Mormon, and other great leaders also knew. The responsibility mothers have today has never required more vigilance. More than at any time in the history of the world, we need mothers who know. Children are being born into a world where they wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. However, mothers need not fear. When mothers know who they are, who God is, and have made covenants with Him, they will have great power and influence for good on their children. Mothers who know desire to bear children. Whereas in many cultures in the world children are becoming less valued, in the culture of the gospel we still believe in having children. Prophets, seers, and revelators who were sustained at this conference have declared that God's commandment for His children to multiply and replenish the earth remains in force. President Ezra Taft Benson taught that young couples should not postpone having children, and that in the eternal perspective, children, not possessions, not position, not prestige, are our greatest jewels. Faithful daughters of God desire children. In the scriptures we read of Eve, Sarah, Rebecca, and Mary, who were foreordained to be mothers before children were born to them. Some women are not given the responsibility of bearing children in mortality. But just as Hannah of the Old Testament prayed fervently for her child, the value women place on motherhood in this life and the attributes of motherhood they attain here will rise with them in the resurrection. Women who desire and work toward that blessing in this life are promised they will receive it for all eternity, and eternity is much, much longer than mortality. There is eternal influence and power in motherhood. Mothers who know honor sacred ordinances and covenants. I have visited sacrament meetings in some of the poorest places on the earth where mothers have dressed with great care in their Sunday best despite walking for miles on dusty streets and using worn-out public transportation. They bring daughters in clean and iron dresses with hair brushed to perfection. Their sons wear white shirts and ties and have missionary haircuts. These mothers know they are going to sacrament meeting where covenants are renewed. These mothers have made and honored temple covenants. They know that if they are not pointing their children to the temple, they are not pointing them toward desired eternal goals. These mothers have influence and power. Mothers who know are nurturers. This is their special assignment and role under the plan of happiness. To nurture means to cultivate, care for, and make grow. Therefore, mothers who know create a climate for spiritual and temporal growth in their homes. Another word for nurturing is homemaking. 
Homemaking includes cooking, washing clothes and dishes, and keeping an orderly home. Home is where women have the most power and influence. Therefore, Latter-day Saint women should be the best homemakers in the world. Working beside children in homemaking tasks creates opportunities to teach and model qualities children should emulate. Nurturing mothers are knowledgeable, but all the education women attain will avail them nothing if they do not have the skill to make a home that creates a climate for spiritual growth. Growth happens best in a house of order, and women should pattern their homes after the Lord's house. Nurturing requires organization, patience, love, and work. Helping growth occur through nurturing is truly a powerful and influential role bestowed on women. Mothers who know are leaders. In equal partnership with their husbands, they lead a great and eternal organization. These mothers plan for the future of their organization. They plan for missions, temple marriages, and education. They plan for prayer, scripture study, and family home evening. Mothers who know build children into future leaders and are the primary examples of what leaders look like. They do not abandon their plan by succumbing to social pressure and worldly models of parenting. These wise mothers who know are selective about their own activities and involvement to conserve their limited strength in order to maximize their influence where it matters most. Mothers who know are always teachers. Since they are not babysitters, they are never off duty. A well-taught friend told me that he did not learn anything at church that he had not already learned at home. His parents used family scripture study, prayer, family home evening, mealtimes, and other gatherings to teach. Think of the power of our future missionary force if mothers considered their homes as a pre-missionary training center. Then the doctrines of the gospel taught in the MTC would be a review and not a revelation. That is influence. That is power. Mothers who know do less. They permit less of what will not bear good fruit eternally. They allow less media in their homes, less distraction, less activity that draws their children away from their home. Mothers who know are willing to live on less and consume less of the world's goods in order to spend more time with their children more time eating together, more time working together, more time reading together, more time talking, laughing, singing, and exemplifying. These mothers choose carefully and do not try to choose it all. Their goal is to prepare a rising generation of children who will take the gospel of Jesus Christ into the entire world. Their goal is to prepare future fathers and mothers who will be builders of the Lord's kingdom for the next 50 years. That is influence. That is power. Who will prepare this righteous generation of sons and daughters? Latter-day Saint women will do this. Women who know and love the Lord and bear testimony of Him. Women who are strong and immovable, who do not give up during difficult and discouraging times. We are led by an inspired prophet of God 
who has called upon the women of the Church to stand strong and immovable for that which is correct and proper under the plan of the Lord. He has asked us to begin in our own homes to teach children the ways of truth. Latter-day Saint women should excel at upholding, nourishing, and protecting families. I have every confidence that our women will do this and will come to be known as mothers who knew. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We do pray and give gratitude for the blessings which were given. As we begin the concluding session of this historic conference, I join you in expressing gratitude for the privilege of sustaining President Henry B. Eyring is in the First Presidency, Elder Cook in the Quorum of the Twelve, and Elder Gonzalez in the Seventh Presence of Seventy. I offer them my love and support and testify they are called of God by a living prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley, according to the spirit of revelation and prophecy. It is that that I'd like to talk to you today. The events of these past two days teach us the need for revelation in the Lord's work and personal revelation in our own lives. Personal revelation is the way we know for ourselves the most important truths of our existing, the living reality of God, our Eternal Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ and the truthfulness of the restored gospel and God's purpose and direction for us. Much of what I know about personal revelation I have learned from examples from prophets, both ancient and modern. This afternoon I would like to share a few of these personal examples and pray that they will inspire each of us to seek the blessings of personal revelation in our own lives. As a young regional representative, I was assigned to assist Elder Marion G. Romney in reorganizing a stake. During the long, quiet ride to the conference, our conversation turned to the spiritual dimensions of our assignment. Elder Romney taught me about how the Lord blesses us with revelation. Robert, he said, I have learned that when we are on the Lord's errand, we have His blessings to accomplish whatever we are asked to do. Elder Romney further explained that we would arrive in a distant city, kneel in prayer, interview priesthood holders, kneel in prayer again, and the Holy Ghost would reveal to us the person whom the Lord had chosen to be the new stake president. He promised me. It would be one of the great spiritual experiences of my life, and it was. Each of us has been sent to earth by our Heavenly Father to merit eternal life, and this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. How do we know the Father and the Son for ourselves? By personal revelation. Personal revelation is the way Heavenly Father helps us know Him and His Son. 
to learn to live the gospel and endure to the end in righteousness that qualifies us to return back into their presence for eternal life. You may ask, how do we seek personal revelation? Paul counseled the saints to rely on the Spirit rather than the wisdom of the world. To obtain that Spirit, we begin with prayer. President Lorenzo Snow had studied the gospel for several years before joining the Church, but he did not receive a witness until three weeks after his baptism, when he retired in secret prayer. He tells us, The Spirit of God descended upon me, he said. Oh, the joy and happiness I felt, for I then received a perfect knowledge that God lives, that Jesus is the Son of God, and of the restoration of the holy priesthood and the fullness of the gospel. End of quote. I have learned that prayer provides a firm foundation for personal revelation, but more is required. While still a regional representative, I had the opportunity to learn from another apostle, Elder Boyd K. Packer. We were assigned to reorganize a stake and began by kneeling in prayer together. After interviewing the priesthood leaders and having prayer, Elder Packer suggested that we walk around the building together. As we walked, he demonstrated a vital principle of seeking personal revelation, the principle the Lord taught Oliver Cowdery. Behold, you must study it out in your mind. We pondered our assignment, counseled together. I listened to an apostle, and the voice of the Spirit came. When we went back, we prayed and studied further, and then we were prepared to receive revelation. Revelation comes on the Lord's timetable, which often means we must move forward in faith, even though we haven't received all the answers we desire. As a general authority, I was assigned to help reorganize a stake presidency under the direction of Elder Ezra Taft Benson. After praying, interviewing, studying, and praying again, Elder Benson asked me if I knew who would be the next president. I said I had not received that inspiration yet. He looked at me for a long time and replied he hadn't either. However, we were inspired to ask three worthy priesthood holders to speak in the Sunday evening session of conference. Moments after the third speaker began, the Spirit prompted me that he should be the new stake president. I looked over at President Benson and saw tears streaming down his face. Revelation had been given to both of us. But only by continuing to seek our Heavenly Father's will as we move forward in faith. Early in my church service, Elder Harold B. Lee taught this lesson when he came to organize a new stake in the district where we were living. Elder Lee asked me, as a newly sustained bishop, if I would join him at a press conference. There, an intense young reporter challenged Elder Lee. 
He said to him, You call yourself a prophet. When was the last time you had revelation? And what was it about? Elderly paused, looked directly at him, and responded in a sweet way. It was yesterday afternoon, about three o'clock. We were praying about who should be called as the president of the new stake, and it was made known to us who that individual should be. The reporter's heart changed. I will never forget the spirit that came into that room as Ellerly bore his powerful witness of the revelation that he had received by those faithfully seeking to do the Lord's will. As faithful children, youth, parents, teachers, and leaders, we may receive personal revelation more frequently than we realize. The more we receive and acknowledge personal revelation, the more our testimonies grow. As a bishop, my testimony grew each time I received revelations or extend calling towards members. That testimony has been strengthened each time I witness general authorities and officers, Area 70s, and stake presidents called or given new assignments. More importantly, I am strengthened by my personal revelations I receive in my role as a son of God, a husband, and a father. I am so thankful for the guidance and direction of the Spirit in our home as we seek for direction in family matters. For all of us, our personal revelations reflect the pattern of revelation received by prophets, as recounted in the scriptures. Adam and Eve called upon the name of the Lord and received personal revelation, including the knowledge of the Savior. Enoch, Abraham, Moses sought for the welfare of their people and were given marvelous revelations recorded in the Pearl of Great Price. Elijah's personal revelation came through a still small voice. Daniel's came in a dream. Peter's personal revelation came and he was given a testimony that Jesus is the Christ. Lehi and Nephi received revelations about the Savior and the plan of salvation, and virtually all of the Bible and Book of Mormon prophets received revelations to warn, teach, strengthen, and comfort them and their people. After much prayer in the temple, President Spencer W. Kimball received the revelation on the priesthood. After praying providing about providing temple blessings to more members of the Church, President Hinckley received revelation about the building of small temples. Prophets received personal revelations to help them in their own lives and in directing the earthly affairs of the Church. Our responsibility is to seek personal revelation for ourselves and for the responsibility the Lord has given us. These past weeks, President Hinckley has been seeking revelation about the callings that would be announced in this conference. About a month ago, in our Thursday Temple meeting of the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve, I listened as he offered a simple, sincere prayer for spiritual guidance. The answer to his heartfelt prayer has now been presented to all of us. 
Do we see the pattern of revelation in the lives of prophets? Are the threads of that pattern also woven through our lives? We know the pattern centers on the Atonement. We receive the blessings of Atonement when we repeat our sins and keep the commandments. When we repent of our sins and keep the commandments, and then we covenant to do when we were baptized, to renew that covenant each week as we partake of the sacrament. As we continue in righteousness, we qualify ourselves to say with Samuel, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And the Lord answers, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, your ears, for they hear. We prepare to receive personal revelation, as the prophets do, by studying the scriptures, fasting, praying, and building faith. Faith is the key. Remember Joseph's preparation for the first vision. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. By unwavering faith, we learn for ourselves that it is by faith that miracles are wrought. Generally, those miracles will not be physical demonstration of God's power, parting of the Red Sea, raising of the dead, breaking down prison walls, or the appearance of heavenly messengers. By design, most miracles are spiritual demonstration of God's power, tender mercies gently bestowed through impressions, ideas, feelings of assurance, solutions to problems, strength to meet challenges, and comfort to bear disappointments and sorrow. These miracles come to us as we endure what the scriptures call a trial of our faith. Sometimes that trial is the time it takes before an answer is received. When President David O. McKay was a young man herding cattle, he sought a witness, but it did not come until many years after, while serving his mission in Scotland. He wrote, It was a manifestation for which a doubting youth I had secretly prayed on the hillside and in meadow. It was an assurance to me that sincere prayer is answered sometime, somewhere. End of quote. The answer may be, not now. Be patient and wait. I testify that on the hillside or the meadow, in the grove or closet, now or in the eternities to come, the Savior's words to each of us will be fulfilled. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. While we are commanded not to seek after signs, we are commanded to seek earnestly the best gifts. These gifts include the Holy Ghost and personal revelation. That revelation will come line upon line, precept upon precept. As the Savior said, And unto him that receiveth the Lord, the Lord will give more. As we go forth from this conference, I call upon each of us to seek more and receive more of the Spirit of God. The Savior prayed that his disciples in the New World would receive that Spirit. Then, as an example to all of us, he departed from his disciples and in prayer thanked his Heavenly Father for bestowing it. 
Let us follow his example. Pray for the Spirit of God, giving thanks for the marvelous blessings in our lives. I bear my special witness that Jesus Christ lives and leads his church through a living prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley. I know, I know that President Hinckley leads this church by revelation. In the words of Alma, Behold, I say unto you, these things are made known unto me by the Holy Spirit of God. Behold, I have fasted and prayed many days, and now I do of myself. I know that they are true. For the Lord God had made them manifest unto me, and this is the spirit of revelation which is in me, that each of us may receive that spirit, obtain the blessings of personal revelation, and know for ourselves that these things are true, is my heartfelt prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Now, my brothers and sisters, we live in an interesting phenomenon. A soloist sings the same song again and again. An orchestra repeats the same music. But a speaker is expected to come up with something new every time he speaks. (laughs) I've spoken some 200 times in general conference. I'm going to break the tradition this morning and repeat in a measure what I have said on another occasion. The Church has become one large family scattered across the earth. There are now more than 13 million of us in 176 nations and territories. A marvelous and wonderful thing is coming to pass. The Lord is fulfilling His promise that His gospel shall be as the stone cut out of the mountain without hands which would roll forth and fill the whole earth, as Daniel saw in vision. A great miracle is taking place right before our eyes. I take you back 184 years to the year 1823. The month was September, the night of September 21, 22 to be exact. The boy Joseph Smith had prayed that night before going to sleep. He asked the Lord for forgiveness of his light-mindedness. A miraculous thing then happened. He says, While I was thus in the act of calling upon God, I discovered a light appearing in my room, which continued to increase until the room was lighter than at noonday when immediately a personage appeared at my bedside. He called me by name and said unto me that he was a messenger sent from the presence of God, that his name was Moroni, that God had a work for me to do, and that my name should be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, and tongues, or that it should be both good and evil spoken of among all people. The boy must have been stunned by what he heard. 
In the eyes of those who knew him, he was simply a poor, unlearned farm boy. He had no wealth. His neighbors were in the same condition. His parents were struggling farmers. The area where they lived was rural and largely unknown. They were simply ordinary people trying to survive through hard work. And yet an angel of God said that Joseph's name should be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, and tongues. How could it be? That description fits the entire world. Now, as we look back 177 years to the organization of the Church, we marvel at what has already happened. When the Church was organized in 1830, there were but six members, only a handful of believers, all residing in a largely unknown village. Today, we have become the fourth or fifth largest church in North America, with congregations in every city of any consequence. Stakes of Zion today flourish in every state of the United States, in every province of Canada, in every state of Mexico, in every nation of Central America, and throughout South America. Congregations are found throughout the British Isles and Europe, where thousands have joined the Church through the years. This work has reached out to the Baltic nations and on down through Bulgaria and Albania and other areas of that part of the world. It reaches across the vast area of Russia. It reaches up into Mongolia and all down through the nations of Asia, into the islands of the Pacific, Australia and New Zealand, and into India and Indonesia. It is flourishing in many of the nations of Africa. Our general conferences are carried by satellite and other means in 92 different languages, and this is only the beginning. This work will continue to grow and prosper and move across the earth. It must do so if Moroni's promise to Joseph is to be fulfilled. This work is unique and wonderful. It is fundamentally different from every other body of religious doctrine of which I know. When Jesus walked the earth, he said, this is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Joseph, when he was 14 years of age, had an experience in that glorious first vision that was different from any other recorded experience of any man at no other time of which we have any record have God our Eternal Father and His beloved Son, the risen Lord, appeared on earth together. At the time of the baptism of Jesus by John in the River Jordan, the voice of God was heard, but He was not seen. At the Mount of Transfiguration, 
Again, the voice of God was heard, but there is no record of his appearance. Stephen saw the Lord on the right hand of the Father, but they did not address or instruct him. Following his resurrection, Jesus appeared to the Nephites in the Western Hemisphere. The voice of the Almighty was heard three times, introducing the risen Christ, but there was no appearance of the Father. How truly remarkable, then, was that vision in the year 1820, when Joseph prayed in the woods and there appeared before him both the Father and the Son. One of these spoke to him, calling him by name, and pointing to the other said, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Nothing like it had ever happened before. One is led to wonder why it was so important that both the Father and the Son appear. I think it was because they were ushering in the dispensation of the fullness of times, the last and final dispensation of the gospel, when there would be gathered together in one the elements of all previous dispensations. This was to be the final chapter in the long chronicle of God's dealings with men and women upon the earth. Following the Savior's death, the Church he had established drifted into apostasy. Fulfilled were the words of Isaiah, who had said, The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenants. Realizing the importance of knowing the true nature of God, men had struggled to find a way to define Him. Learned clerics argued with one another. When Constantine became a Christian in the fourth century, he called together a great convocation of learned men with the hope that they could reach a conclusion of understanding concerning the true nature of deity. All they reached was a compromise of various points of view. The result was the Nicene Creed of 325 A.D. This and subsequent creeds have become the Declaration of Doctrine concerning the nature of deity for most of Christianity ever since. I have read them all a number of times. I cannot understand them. I think others cannot understand them. I am sure that the Lord also knew that many would not, under not understand them. And so in 1820, in that incomparable vision, the Father and the Son appeared to the boy Joseph. They spoke to him with words that were audible, and he spoke to them. They could see, they could speak, they could hear. They were personal. They were of substance. They were not imaginary beings. They were beings tabernacled in flesh. And out of that experience has come our unique 
and true understanding of the nature of deity. No wonder that when Joseph in 1842 wrote the Articles of Faith, he stated as number one, we believe in God the Eternal Father and in His Son Jesus Christ and in the Holy Ghost. As all of you well know, there followed through the years a veritable cloud of witnesses, as Paul described prophetically. First came Moroni with the plates from which were translated the Book of Mormon. What a singular and remarkable thing this was. Joseph's story of the gold plates was fantastic. It was hard to believe and easy to challenge. Could he have written it of his own capacity? It is here, my brothers and sisters, for everyone to handle, to read. Every attempt to explain its origin, other than that which he gave, has falling of its own weight. He was largely unschooled, and yet in a very brief time he brought forth the translation which in published form comes to more than 500 pages. Paul declares that in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. The Bible had stood for centuries. It is a precious and wonderful book. Now there was a second witness declaring the divinity of Christ. The Book of Mormon is the only book ever published of which I know that carries in it a promise that one who reads it prayerfully and asks concerning it in prayer will have revealed to him by the power of the Holy Ghost a knowledge that it is true. Since its first publication, in a rural print shop in Palmyra, New York, there have been more than 133 million copies produced. It has been translated into 105 languages. Not long ago, it was named one of the 20 most influential books ever published in North America. Recently, a first edition sold for $105,000, but the cheapest paperback edition is as valuable to the reader who loves its language and message. Through all of these years, critics have tried to explain it. They've spoken against it. They have ridiculed it. But it has outlived them all, and its influence today is greater than at any time in its history. In this series of events came next the restoration of the priesthood bestowed by resurrected beings who held it when the Savior walked the earth. This occurred in 1829, when Joseph was only 23. Following receipt of the priesthood, the Church was organized on the 6th of April, 1830, when Joseph was a young man, not yet 25. Again, 
The organization is unique and different from that of traditional Christianity. It is largely operated by a lay ministry. Voluntary service is its genius. It has grown and spread apart. Thousands upon thousands of faithful and able men have directed its efforts. Today I stand in wonder at the marvelous things which God revealed to his appointed prophet while he was yet young and largely unknown. The very language of these revelations is beyond the capacity of even a man of great learning, scholars not of our faith, who will not accept our singular doctrines, are puzzled by the great unrolling of this work which is touching the hearts of people across the earth. We are all at all to the Joseph the prophet, the seer and the revelator, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is foreordained to come forth in this generation as an instrument in the hands of the Almighty in restoring to the earth that which the Savior taught when he walked the roads of Palestine. To you, each of you this day, I affirm my witness of the calling of the prophet Joseph, of his works, of the sealing of his testimony with, the, with his blood as a marvel to the eternal truth. Each of you can bear witness of the same thing. You and I are faced with a stark question of accepting the truth of the first vision and that which followed it. On the question of its reality lies the very validity of this Church. If it is truth, and I testify that it is, then the work in which we are engaged is the most important work on the earth. I leave with you my testimony of the truth of these things and I invoke the blessings of heaven upon you. May the windows of heaven be opened and blessings showered upon you as the Lord promised. Never forget that this was his promise and that he has the power and the capacity to see that it is fulfilled. I so pray as I leave my blessing and love with you in the sacred name of our Redeemer, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I have fond childhood memories of my mother reading Book of Mormon stories to me. She had a way of making the scriptural episodes come alive in my youthful imagination, and I did not doubt that my mother had a witness of the truthfulness of that sacred record. I especially remember her description of the Savior's visit to the American continent following His resurrection and of His teachings to the people in the Land of Bountiful. Through the simple consistency of her example and testimony, my mother kindled in me the first flames of faith in the Savior and in His Latter-day Church. I came to know for myself that the Book of Mormon is another testament of Jesus Christ and contains the fullness of His everlasting gospel. 
Today I want to review with you one of my favorite Book of Mormon events, the Savior's appearance in the New World, and discuss His instruction to the multitude about the sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost. I pray for the guidance of the Spirit for me and for you. During the Lord's three-day ministry in the New World, He taught His doctrine, authorized His disciples to perform priesthood ordinances, healed the sick, prayed for the people, and lovingly blessed the children. As the Savior's time with the people was drawing to a close, He succinctly summarized the fundamental principles of His gospel. Said He, Now this is the commandment, Repent, all ye ends of the earth, and come unto Me, and be baptized in My name, that ye may be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost, that ye may stand spotless before Me at the last day. The basic principles outlined by the Master in this scripture are essential for us to understand and to apply in our lives. First was repentance, a turning of the heart and will to God, and a renunciation of sin. As we appropriately seek for and receive the spiritual gift of faith in the Redeemer, we then turn to and rely upon the merits, the mercy, and the grace of the Holy Messiah. Repentance is the sweet fruit that comes from faith in the Savior and involves turning toward God and away from sin. The risen Lord next explained the importance of coming unto Him. The multitude gathered together at the temple was invited literally to come forth unto the Savior one by one, to feel the prints of the nails in the Master's hands and feet, and to thrust their hands into His side. Each individual who had this experience did know of a surety and did bear record that it was He, even Jesus Christ, who had come. The Savior also taught the people to come unto Him through sacred covenants, and He reminded them that they were the children of the covenant. He emphasized the eternal importance of the ordinances of baptism and of receiving the Holy Ghost. In a similar manner, you and I are admonished to turn toward and learn from Christ and to come unto Him through the covenants and ordinances of His restored gospel. As we do so, we will eventually and ultimately come to know Him in His own time and in His own way and according to His own will, as did the people in the land of Bountiful. Repenting and coming unto Christ through the covenants and ordinances of salvation are prerequisite to and a preparation for being sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost and standing spotless before God at the last day. I now want to focus our attention upon the sanctifying influence the Holy Ghost can be in our lives. The gate of baptism leads to the straight and narrow path and to the destination of putting off the natural man and becoming a saint through the Atonement of Christ the Lord. The purpose of our mortal journey is not merely to see the sights on earth or to expend our allotment of time on self-centered pursuits. Rather, we are to walk in newness of life to become sanctified by yielding our hearts unto God and to obtain the mind of Christ. We are commanded and instructed to so live that our fallen nature is changed through the sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost. 
President Marion G. Romney taught that the baptism of fire by the Holy Ghost, quote, converts us from carnality to spirituality. It cleanses, heals, and purifies the soul. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance, and water baptism are all preliminary and prerequisite to it, but the baptism of fire is the consummation. To receive this baptism of fire is to have one's garments washed in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Hence, as we are born again and strive to always have His Spirit to be with us, the Holy Ghost sanctifies and refines our souls as if by fire. Ultimately, we are to stand spotless before God. The gospel of Jesus Christ encompasses much more than avoiding, overcoming, and being cleansed from sin and the bad influences in our lives. It also essentially entails doing good, being good, and becoming better. Repenting of our sins and seeking forgiveness are spiritually necessary, and we must always do so. But remission of sin is not the only or even the ultimate purpose of the gospel. To have our hearts changed by the Holy Spirit such that we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually, as did King Benjamin's people, is the covenant responsibility we have accepted. This mighty change is not simply the result of working harder or developing greater individual discipline. Rather, it is the consequence of a fundamental change in our desires, our motives, and our natures made possible through the Atonement of Christ the Lord. Our spiritual purpose is to overcome both sin and the desire to sin, both the taint and the tyranny of sin. Prophets throughout the ages have emphasized the dual requirements of one, avoiding and overcoming bad, and two, doing good and becoming better. Consider the penetrating questions posed by the psalmist. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Brothers and sisters, it is possible for us to have clean hands but not have a pure heart. Please notice that both clean hands and a pure heart are required to ascend into the hill of the Lord and to stand in His holy place. Let me suggest that hands are made clean through the process of putting off the natural man and by overcoming sin and the evil influences in our lives through the Savior's Atonement. Hearts are purified as we receive His strengthening power to do good and become better. All of our worthy desires and good works, as necessary as they are, can never produce clean hands and a pure heart. It is the Atonement of Jesus Christ that provides both a cleansing and redeeming power that helps us to overcome sin and a sanctifying and strengthening power that helps us to become better than we ever could by relying only upon our own strength. The infinite Atonement is for both the sinner and for the saint in each of us.
In the Book of Mormon, we find the masterful teachings of King Benjamin concerning the mission and atonement of Jesus Christ. The simple doctrine he taught caused the congregation to fall to the earth, for the fear of the Lord had come upon them, and they viewed themselves in their own carnal state, even less than the dust of the earth. And they all cried aloud with one voice, saying, O have mercy, and apply the atoning blood of Christ, that we may receive forgiveness of our sins, and our hearts may be purified. For we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who created heaven and earth and all things, who shall come down among the children of men. Again in this verse, we find the twofold blessing of both forgiveness of sin, suggesting clean hands, and the transformation of our nature, signifying pure hearts. As King Benjamin concluded his instruction, he reiterated the importance of these two basic aspects of spiritual development. And now for the sake of these things which I have spoken unto you, that is, for the sake of retaining a remission of your sins from day to day, that ye may walk guiltless before God, I would that ye should impart of your substance to the poor. Our sincere desire should be to have both clean hands and a pure heart, both a remission of sins from day to day and to walk guiltless before God. Clean hands alone will not be enough when we stand before Him who is pure and who as a lamb without blemish and without spot freely spilled His precious blood for us. Some who hear or read this message may think the spiritual progress I am describing is not attainable in their lives. We may believe these truths apply to others, but not to us. We will not attain a state of perfection in this life, but we can and should press forward with faith in Christ along the straight and narrow path and make steady progress toward our eternal destiny. The Lord's pattern for spiritual development is line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. Small, steady, incremental spiritual improvements are the steps the Lord would have us take. Preparing to walk guiltless before God is one of the primary purposes of mortality and the pursuit of a lifetime. It does not result from sporadic spurts of intense spiritual activity. I witness that the Savior will strengthen and assist us to make sustained, paced progress. The example in the Book of Mormon of many, exceedingly great many, in the ancient Church who were pure and spotless before God is a source of encouragement and great comfort to me. I suspect those members of the ancient Church were ordinary men and women just like you and me. These individuals could not look upon sin save it were with abhorrence, and they were made pure and entered into the rest of the Lord their God. And these principles and this process of spiritual progress apply to each of us equally and always. The requirement to put off the natural man and become a saint, to avoid and overcome bad and to do and become good— to have clean hands and a pure heart is a recurring theme throughout the Book of Mormon. 
In fact, Moroni's concluding invitation at the end of the book is a summary of this theme. Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in Him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And if ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness, and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is His grace sufficient for you that by His grace ye may be perfect in Christ. And again, if ye by the grace of God are perfect in Christ and deny not His power, then are ye sanctified in Christ by the grace of God through the shedding of the blood of Christ, which is in the covenant of the Father, unto the remission of your sins, that ye become holy without spot. May you and I repent with sincerity of heart and truly come unto Christ. I pray that we will seek through the Savior's Atonement to have both clean hands and a pure heart, that we may become holy without spot. I witness that Jesus Christ is the Son of the Eternal Father and our Savior. He who is without spot redeems us from sin and strengthens us to do good and to become better. I so testify in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Everyone who will live the gospel of Jesus Christ daily and endure to the end will gain eternal life. This is the promise of the Lord. In its essentials, the gospel is simple and easy to understand and adapted to the capacity of the weakest. Elmer, the Book of Mormon prophet, aptly remarked, Now you may suppose that this is foolishness in me, but by small and simple things are great things brought to pass, and by very small means the Lord doth confound the wise and bringeth about the salvation of many souls. Quite recently, I was privileged to observe this process in the life of a brother named Stan, who had been less active for some 45 years. He had lived a good life and supported both his wife and his son in their activity as faithful members in the Church. Yet, for personal reasons, he chose to remain outside the fellowship of the Church. Even so, each month he welcomed the home teachers. During February 2006, Stan received new home teachers. Their first visit was pleasant enough, although Stan showed no real interest in the gospel or in any matters remotely associated with spiritual things. Their next visit did little to alter their initial observations, even though Stan was a little warmer and friendlier. On their third visit, however, there was a visible change in Stan's countenance and demeanor. To their utmost surprise, and even before they were able to present their message, Stan interrupted them with a number of thoughtful questions. In the ensuing discussion, he also recounted these experiences during the past month, in which he and his wife had commenced reading one chapter a day from the Book of Mormon. Elder Bruce R. McConkie eloquently described the type of reawakening Stan experienced. Here is a man who gains a copy of this blessed book. 
begins to read it and continues until, having read it all, his famished soul is filled with the bread of life. He cannot lay it aside or ignore its teachings. It is as though the waters of life are flowing into the barren deserts of his soul, quenching the arid, empty feeling that theretofore separated him from his God. The home teachers were reminded of the remarkable power of the Book of Mormon and how very real the influence of the Spirit of the Lord is when we turn to its sacred pages. They also more fully understood the Prophet Joseph Smith's declaration that the Book of Mormon is the most correct of any book on earth, and a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. Stan's thirst for learning and rediscovery of the gospel soon expanded his reading beyond one chapter a day, accompanied by deep soul-searching and fervent prayer. To those who sometimes are concerned whether the Lord will actually hear their prayers, the Savior reminds us, If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or, if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give good gifts through the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Our beloved Prophet President Gordon Binkley also counseled, you can't do it alone. You need the help of the Lord. And the marvelous thing is that you have the opportunity to pray with the expectation that your prayers will be heard and answered. He stands ready to help. During August of 2006, Stan ventured alongside his ever-faithful wife into his ward sacrament meeting the first in 45 years. There, with a humble and prayerful heart, he listened to the simple sacramental prayers offered by the youthful priests. Feeling unworthy and sensing something of the depth and the meaning of this most holy ordinance, he reflected deeply and painfully without partaking of the bread or the water for a number of weeks. President Joseph Fielding Smith, in attended testimony many years ago, said, In my judgment, the sacrament meeting is the most sacred, the most holy of all the meetings of the Church. When I reflect upon the gathering of the Savior and his apostles on that memorable night when he introduced the sacrament, my heart is filled with wonderment and my feelings are touched. I consider that gathering one of the most solemn and wonderful since the beginning of time. Stan continued studying, praying, attending church, and receiving appropriate counsel and encouragement from his home teachers. Then the day arrived when joyfully he felt he was ready to put forth his hand to partake of the precious sacrament. When we partake worthily, thoughtfully, 
and reverently of the Holy Sacrament, we are enabled to become partakers of the divine nature because of the atonement of Christ and the power of the Holy Ghost. As Stan returned to activity in the Church, he received a calling, and some months later he was ordained an elder. In July 2007, Stan and his wife knelt across the altar in a house of the Lord, and by the authority and eternal law of God, were married for time and for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, may we discover anew the divine power of daily prayer and the convincing influence of the Book of Mormon and the Holy Scriptures. On Sundays, when partaking of the sacrament, may we do so in the spirit of true devotion to Him who is the giver of all things. In the wake of our best and very limited efforts, and because of the Lord's infinite goodness, great things are brought to pass by the small and simple things. Finally, as to these sacred things, may I add my personal witness and assurance. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.